The scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be picking up uh, halfway through verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the world in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we go ahead and pray? Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Well, life, both real and imagined, is littered with people listening to the wrong messengers. On the imagined side of things, there is, of course, uh, Michael Scott from The Office, uh, that lovable but uh, clueless and often cringeworthy regional manager of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, who followed the GPS in his car right into the lake. On the real side of life, about 10 years ago in uh, Orange County, Texas, near Louisiana, in a location where there was a sign that clearly said, no swimming, alligators, a man began to move toward the water. And someone shouted out, dude, there's alligators in there. Don't go in there. But the man then turned and mocked the alligators And went into the water, and according to the story, almost immediately yelled for help, but was nonetheless eaten by an alligator. There are important messages in life that we don't want to miss. And the importance of the message is often tied to the authority of the messenger. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making in the rest of chapter 1. The author is contrasting two sets of messengers, angels on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand, in order to prove the superiority of the message of Jesus to that of the message of the angels. Remember, the original recipients of this letter were tempted to turn away from Judaism back into, uh, turn away from Christianity back into Judaism. They were beginning to experience persecution as Christians. They were tempted to turn away from the way of Jesus and turn back to the law of Moses, which the Bible says was delivered by 
angels. We're going to jump into that in a little bit in a minute. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen to the message of the superior messenger. In fact, if you're, if you're looking at chapter 1, and especially the verses that I just read, and you've been scratching your head, you know, maybe for years, going, what in the world is going on in this text? I can just give you that kind of high-level answer. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen to the message of the superior messenger. That's the point he's driving home. Who are the messengers we're tempted to listen to? What is their message? That's what we need to wrestle with as we wrestle with this text this morning. The people in Hebrews were tempted to look to angels for answers in their anxious age. Who are we tempted to look to in our anxious age? That's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. There's three things I want us to see as we look at this passage. First, the message about the angels. We do learn some things about angels, even though that's not the point of the passage. So we're not going to get bogged down there. But the message about the angels. Second, we'll look at the superiority of the Son. And then third, we'll look at the message of Jesus for our anxious age. So the message about the angels, the superiority of the Son, and the message of Jesus for our anxious age. So let's jump in. The message about the angels. How do people tend to think about angels? People do. A recent uh, Associated Press survey said that 7 in 10 U.S. adults say that they believe in angels. 70%. That includes 84% of those with some religious affiliation and 33% of those without any religious affiliation believe in angels, including 2% of atheists and 25% of agnostics. So angels are very much a, a thing in people's imagination. However, the way in which people tend to imagine angels falls pretty far short of how the Bible portrays angels. So, you know, we often, when we think of angels, perhaps, we think of Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, right? How does he refer to himself? Uh, angel, second class. You know, he's going to help George navigate the storm in his life. Or we think of Monica in Touched by an Angel. Does anybody remember Monica, right? Didn't you just feel like you needed to drink, you know, something uh, sour after all that sweetness to kind of cut it a little bit? You know, there's Monica in uh, Touched by an Angel. Or, you know, Hollywood, other popular film and, and, and novels will try to present angels to us as something that are, are meant to be terrifying, and yet we're still drawn to them. So even then, you know, it falls short of how the Bible portrays angels. So what does the Bible tell us about angels? Thousand-foot overview here, okay? But with that, I want to make a book recommendation. You know, I love making book recommendations. Um, I've referenced this one before. The title is Satan Cast Out, A Study in Biblical Demonology. And it's the, it's the go-to I would put in your hands if you wanted to begin to think about what the Bible tells us about the spiritual realm, angels and demons, that's the book. I would say pick that up and read. Start there. It is a biblical theology of angels and demons. Uh, Satan cast out. The author is Frederick Lee. Some general statements from uh, Lee. First of all, Scripture assumes they exist, angels exist, and attributes to them personality. They have intelligence. They have moral character. They're said to love and to rejoice and to desire and to converse. They are powerful even terrifying. What's, when you read the Bible, what's the first thing that angels usually say when they appear to someone? 
Don't be afraid, right? They're terrifying. In fact, if, you know, we don't have time to unpack everything the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 7, when he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But what's behind that is just the reality that these, that these creatures, they're created, are terrifying, are incredibly powerful. But again, finite, they're not God, finite created beings. Um, what did we learn in the Old Testament? The Old Testament, we see angels appearing in person, appearing in dreams, appearing in visions. They perform a number of tasks. They encourage and strengthen people, like with Hagar in Genesis 16. They deliver people from harm, like with Lot and his family in Genesis 19. They also judge and rebuke, like with Israel in Judges chapter 2, when Israel disobeyed God. And they kill. Passover, Exodus 12, firstborn of Egypt. The New Testament, their role becomes uh, much more clear, comes into focus, and a, and a major clue is found in their name. In both Hebrew and Greek, the name simply means messenger. And that really comes into focus in the New Testament. You begin to realize that the main purpose of angels throughout Scripture is to deliver God's message in one way or another. Think of the role that angels played throughout Jesus' ministry. The angels announced the birth of Jesus to Mary and to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and to, and to the shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, with singing, with rejoicing. It was angels who ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. We see that in Mark chapter 1. And, and the author of Hebrews in verse 14 says that angels are given by God for our sake. Let me just read it for us real quick. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So this text is not teaching that everyone has a guardian angel. That is not a biblical idea. But what this text is telling us is that God has given angels to serve God's people in ways that we cannot see. Angels are commissioned by God to care for God's people. All right, so let's just step back again real quick. Why, why does the author of Hebrews talk about angels so much in this passage? And it actually carries over into the first, you know, first few verses of chapter 2 as well. He's making a contrast at two levels. The first contrast is at the level of the messenger. He's contrasting Jesus with the angels in order to show that Jesus is the superior messenger. And his deeper point, the, the thing that he's getting at by making that contrast, is to contrast the message brought by those messengers. The message of the angels was good. It was from God. The, the, the angels were delivering God's message. The author of Hebrews is using that message in order to prove what he's saying about Jesus. The message of the angels wasn't bad, it was just incomplete. The message of Jesus is complete. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is both message and messenger. So the author of Hebrews is driving home the point, listen to the superior messenger. Jesus. So let's jump in secondly and look at the, the contrast. The superiority of the Son is what we're going to consider here. Why, why listen to the message of Jesus and not that of angels? That's what the bulk of the chapter is unpacking. And 
And uh, Michael Kruger actually offers a helpful summary here. And, and you know, I was, I was telling during our pre-service prayer time this morning, I said there's easily five sermons in this passage. Um, and I've got four of them here in these next four points that I'm going to summarize. And I've got to give them five minutes each. So here we go. Um, why listen to Jesus and his message? First, Jesus has a better name. Jesus has a better name, and we see this in verses 4 and 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. That son is the better name. The angels are never called son of God. They are referred to as sons, plural, at time. No angel is ever referred to as son of God. Jesus has inherited that name. Jesus is the Son of God. That first Old Testament quotation in verse 5, which, interestingly, I mentioned last week that in those first three verses, the author gave seven attributes of Jesus, seven being the number of completion um, in Jewish thought. Here he gives seven Old Testament references to support the superiority of Jesus over the message of the angels. Again, driving home for them as they read this, they would have seen that. Like, oh, he's really driving it home here. Right? Superiority of Jesus. Jesus has a better name. That first Old Testament quotation is from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 addresses one who will sit on David's throne. He will inherit the nations. He will rule the whole world. He will fulfill the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the nations of the earth will be blessed through one of their offspring. And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is that king. When you see the word begotten, today I have begotten you, we need to remember that in, in, you know, in Old Testament thought, in, in the, you know, kind of the culture of that day, a king's birthday, if you will, the day in which the king was begotten was the day that he ascended to the throne. His coronation day, if you will, was his birthday the day that he was begotten. So for Jesus to be begotten in this sense is simply a way to say the day that Jesus ascended to the throne, his resurrection and ascension, is the day that the king was ultimately begotten by God. The second Old Testament quote is from 2 Samuel uh, 4, or Samuel 7, verse 14. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Second Samuel chapter 7, God promises to David that he will always have a son on the throne, and God is saying Jesus is that greater son. Jesus is great David's greater and eternal son. So Jesus, verse 4, has inherited the name son of God. When did that happen? At one level, Jesus has always been the son of God. However, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, 4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The Son of God was inaugurated, as it were, as king, as ruler. He ascended to the throne with his ascension into the heavenly realms. He was begotten on that day as God's son, God's ruler over all. Jesus is a superior messenger because Jesus is the son of God. He has a better name than the angels. But second, Jesus is worshiped by the angels. Look at verse six. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. What's the second thing that angels usually say? After they say, don't be afraid, get up off your knees. Don't worship me. I'm not God. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is that, in fact, the angels worship Jesus. Not only are angels not God and not to be worshipped, but Jesus is the one before whom the angels bow. Only God is worshipped. The angels refused worship. Jesus never refused worship. In his earthly life, when people offered him adoration and worship, he never said stop because he is God. Jesus is greater than the angels because he has a better name and because they worship him as God. Third, Jesus is the ruler of angels. So verses 7 through 9 and verses 13 through 14. In verses 8 and 9, take a look there with me. We read, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The author is quoting there from Psalm 45 and saying that Psalm 45 refers to Jesus. Jesus is the one whose rule is eternal. You are God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay, that's what's being said. Jesus is God. His throne, his rule is eternal. This is, this is something being attributed to Jesus. He is God. Jesus is, again, referred to as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But, but here's, the, here's the kicker. God is referring to Jesus as God. Because the author is saying of the Son, He, that is God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God is referring to Jesus as God. Jesus is God, the eternal ruler of all. That's verses 8 and 9. In verse 13, the author applies Psalm 110 to Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, in, in, that, in that day, whenever a king conquered an army, uh, the generals would be brought forward and, and the king and his generals would put their feet on the neck of those generals that, whom, they had, you know, whom they had defeated, including the, the opposing king. What God is saying concerning Jesus in Psalm 110 is that the nations will be brought to him, enemy will, you know, evil will be defeated, and Jesus' reign will be complete on that day, on that last day. Verses 7 and 14 are saying that the angels are sent by Jesus. And this is, again, coming back to the point. Jesus rules over the angels. Jesus is the one who sends. The angels are the ones who go. And so verse 7 speaks of he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. I don't think that that means that angels literally become wind and, and spirits, you know, uh, ministers a flame of fire, angels become flames of fire. I think that is a way of talking about the authority that God gives to um, angels when it comes to the created order. But again, there's a lot of confusion, and what does that mean going on in verse 7? 
Verse 14 is a little bit more clear. The angels in some way are sent to minister to God's people. But again, the point in both is that they are sent. Jesus is the one who has authority to send them. When Jesus says go, they go. And so Jesus is the superior messenger because he has a better name. The angels worship him and he rules over them. But then fourth, Jesus is the creator of all things, including the angels. Verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. It is impossible to escape what the author of Hebrews is saying in this passage. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And here, in this last point, creation wears out. (laughs) Look in the mirror. We're all wearing out. But Jesus was there in the beginning, and he has no end. Jesus is a messenger greater than the angels. He has a better name. He receives their worship. He rules over them. He made them. What is the message of Jesus for us today? What is the message of Jesus for us in our anxious age? Let's let's think about the message that the world sends us. What are are the lies that we tend to hear from the world? And they, they boil down to two things. There is no God, which has been the lie that has been told in one form or another since the Enlightenment. Or, and I should say, meaning and identity are found through self discovery. There it is. There is no God, meaning and identity are found through self discovery. Discovery. And where is that led? It's led to despair. Because without God, life is meaningless. It's led to anxiety because you can't be real in a world where your identity is a digital brand that you have to create and somehow maintain. And it's led to desperation because people are desperate to find happiness. In America, happiness has been marketed as affluence, importance, health, fulfillment. But the world cannot deliver on these things. People are metaphorically killing themselves, pursuing these things, and sometimes literally doing so because they realize they'll never achieve them. Or they're just finding a way to to self-medicate until they die. And sadly, tragically, sinfully, the church has embraced the lies of the world. Jesus will help you get what you want. Jesus is the key to your best life now. Do you want affluence? Do you want influence? Do you want power? Do you want wealth? Do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want well-behaved kids? Do you want a little bit less miserable existence? Come to church. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am God, and I reign over all things. God, I reign over all things. But I am a good And I am a gracious king. No lies, 
no deceit, no spin with me, no abuse of my infinite power. In fact, I became a man in order to rescue you from something far worse than a life of despair. I've come to rescue you from hell itself. I'm king. Jesus also says, you are my special creation. You are my special creation. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. No matter how broken you are in mind or in body, nothing can erase the wonder and beauty of being human. Jesus says, I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new. I will set everything right one day. I will judge every evil. I will wipe away every tear. I will make straight that which is crooked. The earth will be reborn. The earth will be renewed. And you will be more fully human than you've ever been. You will be more fully you than you've ever been. And you have a hope now that's anchored in me. This is Jesus' message to us in our age of anxiety and despair and desperation. I am king. I am God. I rule over all things, but I am a good and a gracious king. I made you. I formed you in your mother's womb. I knit you together. Your body matters. Everything about you matters, no matter what the world says, no matter how broken you are. You are my special creation. Nothing can take away the glory of being human. I'm making all things new. And in the meantime, Jesus says, I summon you to my service. I summon you to my service. I have a purpose for you in this time, this brief momentary life that you have right now. You spend your life saying, what am I going to do with my life? And Jesus says, I have a plan for your life. I summon you to my service. I have work prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Work in which you will find a fulfillment that you couldn't imagine. And you say, well, I live such an ordinary, mundane existence. No one is going to remember me. My, my great-grandkids might not remember me. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is sovereign over all, says to you, there are things that I will do through you that you may never see in the lives of other people. I summon you to my service today. You say, but my, my, my body is broken, my, my mind is broken, what can I possibly do? And Jesus says, your brokenness is the background, is the backdrop for my, my glory and my grace. I, I don't have time to tell you about my friend, Tony Roberts, who, who, who suffers with severe psychiatric difficulties and yet has considered his life called, summoned to the service of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of his brokenness, so that he can come alongside others who themselves are broken and help them see that as they look to Jesus, they can delight in their disorder. If you were at the women's uh, brunch yesterday, you heard our sister Janice talk about how she was able to testify to God's grace and goodness toward her in the midst of brokenness and grief and sorrow. This is part of the beauty of being 
called by God as the broken and flawed people that we are in this time that we have on earth. He says, I want to take your wounds. I want to take your brokenness. I want to minister my grace to you in that place. And then from that place, have you be a witness to me in the hearts of people. And you may never see the fruit, but I see it. This is, this is life. This is life. Jesus says, listen to me. Listen to me. If the message of Jesus is superior to that of the angels, how much more is the message of Jesus greater than the message of the world? The message of the world says, jump into the water. But there's alligators there. Don't go. Don't go. Turn away. Turn away before it's too late. Find life in Jesus now. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us a vision for what you call your people to. Lord, we... <laughs> As C.S. Lewis said, our problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. Oh God, would you increase our desire for you? Would you increase our desire for your return? Would you increase our desire to live for your glory now in this brief momentary life that we have? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.